Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney Archive podcast. Hey, everybody. We're back with the Paul McCartney Archive podcast discussing today Red Rose Speedway, the album Paul McCartney and Wings released in 1973, an album that some deemed to be a failure, others deemed it to be a success. Chris, what was your take on that record? I'm fond of Red Rose Speedway, actually. It was an early McCartney album for me was one of the first ones I listened to as a kid. And I got that album on the same little shopping trip when I picked up Wings Wildlife. So I got those albums in one dose. And of course, Red Rose Speedway sounded pretty wonderful next to Wings Wildlife. It's interesting you got those at the same time because the composition and the production on some of the tracks, it has a homogenous sound. There is that early Wings homebrew sound that permeates both albums Red Rose Speedway comes off as a lot less homebrew than Wings Wildlife, fortunately. And there are even some big production numbers on Red Rose Speedway. Paul had made a conscious decision to bring in a producer. In fact, a couple quotes I have from Paul about the album. Paul says, Red Rose Speedway was the live act. I mean, the album's okay, it has its moments, but nothing approaching the impact of the band in person. After I heard Wildlife, I thought, hell, we've really blown it here. The next one after that, Red Rose Speedway, I, I couldn't stand. Which takes me to a quote from Glenn Johns, who actually produced a good amount of the record before walking out, said, If you think that everything you do is a gem of marvelous music, you're wrong. And if you want to sit and play shit and get stoned for a few hours, don't expect me to record everything you're doing because, frankly, it's a waste of tape and a waste of my energy. One of the few people to stand up to McCartney that way. Right. And the only way it ended was through a walkout. He couldn't even stay in the studio with him. Do you think that Red Rose Speedway is an attempt to return to Ram territory? You and I were talking not too long ago. You have McCartney, one, he made in his home, more or less. Then Ram, this big production. Then back down to wildlife, sparse. Then comes Red Rose Speedway. So yeah, in, in a sense, he is going back and forth between these two extremes before Wings finally takes flight with Band on the Run. I mean, pun intended. So to answer your question, yes. I think he's trying to get the feeling back of Ram, which at this point in time in history is still a big failure for Paul. Yeah, it's interesting he would choose to go back there, huh? And he's really choosing to go back there because we have several Ram leftovers on this album. We have Big Barn Bed. I don't think it was recorded at the time of Ram, but it it was written around that time as we demonstrated actually on the Ram podcast. That's right, that's right. And we have Get On The Right Thing and Little Lamb Dragonfly. So we have three Ram leftovers actually making it onto this album. And in the case of the latter two, those are the actual Ram recordings that they overdubbed onto. I still can't get over the fact that Get On The Right Thing is the actual Ram recording. It just blows my mind. It ends up sounding very much like a Wings record to me on Red Rose Speedway. I was surprised to learn that that's the Ram vocal, as a matter of fact. It's, it's unbelievable. And as you said on the last podcast, where I believe it was I Am Your Singer, was 
maybe the first instance of the Wings sound. Right. Uh, this album sets the tone for what Wings will sound like for the remainder or of the better 70s. and worse. Correct. Yes. Right. So this album was originally intended as a double album and got paired back to a single album. Do you mind if I read through what the full list was meant to be? If you have the list in front of you, go ahead. Sure. I assume all the listeners listening know the original track list, so pull that out, compare it to what we're about to tell you. Yeah, do please break this down by side. That I am more than happy to do. So you've cracked open your new imaginary Red Row Speedway double vinyl. Side one of disc one, Big Barn Bed, My Love, When the Night, Single Pigeon. All right. Nothing new there. Flip it over. You've got By the way, that's about that's about 12 minutes. 12 minutes long. Side two, Tragedy, which is a cover. Mama's Little Girl, Loop, First Indian on the Moon, and then I Would Only Smile. At this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, what's Tragedy? What's I Would Only Smile? All right. Side three, or the first side of disc two, is Country Dreamer, Night Out, One More Kiss, Jazz Street, and the flip side is I Lie Around, Little Lamb Dragonfly, Get on the Right Thing, 1882, and finally The Mess, the live version of the song. So Chris, you assembled this and we listened to it. What did you think? I was very disappointed. (laughs) Not with the content itself, because the songs are good, and I think I'd rather have all of these songs than the pared-down offering we get on the actual release, Red Rose Speedway. But the track listing makes no sense. The order makes no sense. We end up with a side A that's 12 or 13 minutes, a side B that's 12 or 13, a side C that's something like 14 or 15, and a side D that's 27 minutes. Yikes. That's... That makes no sense. We end up with a side four that is longer than all of record one. And this sort of thing just wasn't done uh, in the early 70s. So I can't imagine... Supposedly this was an actual acetate. So this was an attempt at some kind of an official track listing for the Red Rose Speedway double album. But if you listen through it, it's... I really think I could hit shuffle on this group of songs and come up with as good a track order. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there's not much of an arc to it. Especially Side C. Read Side C again. Country Dreamer, Night Out, One More Kiss, followed by Jazz Street. How does that make any sense? It makes no sense. I mean, for those of you who don't know, I mean, Country Dreamer is an acoustic country type song. It's a country song. It shows up on Band on the Run. Night Out is an unreleased track. And I love that a lot of the unreleased material on this was meant to come out on cold cuts and various Mm -hmm. iterations of cold cuts. So I guess it shows that Paul did like a lot of these unreleased songs. Just going off my memory here, let me, those would be Night Out, Jazz Street, 1882, Mama's Little Girl. Even some versions had I Would Only Smile on it. There's a song called Thank You, Darling. It's not often um, mentioned that was meant to be on there. Soily, a studio version. There's a lot of extra material here. Night Out, Chris, as you're saying, is this like rocker? The interesting thing about both Night Out and Jazz Street is how late 70s they sound. 
Right. They both seem sort of proto-disco to me, especially Jazz Street. But Night Out as well, it's sort of a dance music track, isn't it? It really is. It could be like It really doesn't sound like 1972. you imagine Blondie or the Talking Heads covering Night Out? It would have worked. But the strange thing then about Side C, do you want to finish the track listing there? It was uh, Country Dreamer. Uh, Country Dreamer, Night Out, One More Kiss, (laughs) which, (laughs) you know. And Jazz Street. So Country Dreamer is uh, country. Night Out is proto-disco. One More Kiss is pastiche country. It's actually, he actually does like a country voice on the vocal of that song. And then Jazz Street is more sort of dance music-y, instrumental, proto-disco. What kind of side is that? Uh, it's It tough. comes closer to being the right length for a side, I think, since Night Out and Jazz Street are both pretty long. That's the other thing. We get a short country song, long, urbane, instrumental track. <laughs> short country song, long, urbane, instrumental track. It doesn't make any sense. Well, even side two, how do you put loop before I would only smile? I would only smile is a concise pop song. It's a fine track. Loop is, I don't even know. We'll get into that, but I don't know what that is. So I think just on the basis of the timings of the sides, we could disqualify that double album. There's no way you're having a 27-minute long side D. But then on top of that, the track sequence itself makes no aesthetic sense, no sense in terms of pacing. So I, I don't know what this is. Supposedly, and this is now just getting into total internet hearsay, but supposedly there's another attempt at an acetate following that one that also makes no sense. It sort of arbitrarily replaces a few of the tracks on the listing we just discussed with some other tracks and doesn't really help the situation much. There's anything I know about sequencing and mastering and mixing before an album is meant to be released is there probably were many different variations that were going through the office And who knows if there is some version sitting in EMI's vault somewhere. One day, maybe Paul will release at least the track list in the booklet of the archive version of this album if he ever gets around to it. I think that would be interesting to possibly revisit this record. I I really do hope that if there is an archive edition of Red Rose Speedway, that it does include all of these extra tracks because we're complaining about the track listing here, but these are all, I mean, this is a really good group of tracks. It was an ambitious album. Yeah. And there's a quote Henry McCulloch had said, let me just read this whole quote. goes along with what you're saying. I'd been really delighted with the double album idea because from what you heard on the album, there was another side to it that brought out the best in McCartney. And I thought, great, at least he's doing something that my friends are going to like. He was starting to rock out a little bit but it only came out as a single and the rest was never released. And that decision was from EMI because they wanted to put out an album of easy listening songs. You know, it's borne out by the track listing of the released album. We didn't get The Rockers. We didn't get 1882 or The Mess or I guess conceivably Best Friend or Soily 
a lot of real rockin' material that didn't make it onto the album. In fact, nothing particularly rockin' made it onto the album, right? Yeah. Except for arguably get on the right thing. Which is still easy listening. It's not distorted in any capacity. Yeah, it's almost Carpenters friendly, this album. That's right. So this album released 30th April 1973 in the U.S., May 4th, 1973 in the U.K., uh, was certified gold in both countries and ended up at number five on the U.K. album charts and number one on the U.S. Billboard 200, primarily due to the strength of the sales of the hit single My Love, which is also a love-hate dynamic for some of the McCartney fans. Wow, yeah, love-hate will enter into our conversation of regarding My Love. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as I was digging into this, I did not find as much material on this album as I would have liked to. So maybe we should just jump in, track one, side A, Big Barn Bed. And actually, the fact that you didn't find much material, we might want to make a more general comment about that before we dive in. Sure. This is not a well-loved album. Every detail of the making of Band on the Run has been documented. It's a beloved album. Red Rose Speedway... Actually, it was a very interesting period. We covered a lot of the general tenor of 1972 in our last podcast. It's an interesting period. A lot was going on. But what would you say, Ryan? The consensus on Red Rose Speedway is, meh, pretty good. Yeah, maybe half-baked. I would say that my my own fondness for this album is higher than that of the consensus. I, I find a lot to like in it and really find only one track objectionable. The rest I actually quite like. Yeah, it's a funny sort of record. It doesn't hit all the notes that Ram hits. No. You can tell Paul's sort of trying to go for that. He's doing the polished thing, the backwards guitars and the reverbs and the precision. And the country feeling. Right. There's a country feeling and a homebrew feeling that permeates the whole record. Exactly. It's not critically derided. A lot of people really like it, but they don't love it. I've never seen it on the top list of any McCartney poll. I've never met another Beatles fan who's been like, hey, man, have you heard Red Rose Speedway? (laughs) (laughs) We need to get together and talk about Red Rose Speedway. Let's let's talk about I mean, probably you and I are the only guys doing this on the planet this year. But I think it's an underrated album, and I like it quite a bit more than some of the underrated late 70s albums. I think I like it more than London Town or Back to the Egg, although I think those are underrated. Back to the Egg, that's an interesting comparison that I've just put together. This has a lot of the feeling of Back to the Egg, where the songs themselves are, you're listening to the song, this is a great song, this is well produced. This is, this is sort of well-written. It's at least well-sung and well-played. <laughs> but together, they never really feel like an album. It just is right. like you said, uh, Back to the Egg suffers from that, but we'll get to that in a bit. All right, let's dive in then with Big Barn Bed.
The memory I have of this song, aside from hearing it on record for the first time, is the 1973 James Paul McCartney TV special. They start the show with this, and Paul and Wings are hanging on that F. And you realize Wings is playing to an audience of televisions. It's surreal and incredibly creative, and I'm disappointed that not many people have seen that. Have you seen that? It's great. Not the entire special. No. The special is (laughs) highly flawed, but yeah, absolutely. That opening number, that Big Barn Bed opening number is fantastic. It's just so good. I'm surprised I had high High energy, good singing by everybody. The little sarcastic bio profile font and text that comes over when they like pan on a person, like Paul, name, James Paul McCartney, (laughs) like... (laughs) I can't remember the little sarcastic comments, but they're unbelievable. It's a fun, like, lovely little music video, really. Right. music video. Yeah, yeah, that is a good one. So this song, as we covered on our Ram podcast, this song bears a relationship to a couple of other songs. Uh, It uses the same uh, verse melody as Great Day, a song from, let's say, 1970-ish, that was finally recorded in the 90s on Flaming Pie. And, of course, it's quoted at the end of the Ramon reprise on the album Ram. It's really fun to hear the album start with that tune, that snippet of a tune that we heard from Ram. Anyone who's hearing Red Rose Speedway for the first time who knows Ram really well is going to get a kick out of that. Yes, it's the fully realized version of the little snatch on Ram. So for a McCartney insider, you know, a real McCartney fan, this is a pretty fun opening track. There are two tracks on this album that use roughly the same technique. The, well, I don't know if I should call them tracks. The the medley, its goal is to get to a point where at the end of the entire medley, all the different melodies are overlapped and interwoven. And we get that in an embryonic form on the track Big Barn Bed. He has different strains of, of... lead melody and background melody that get overlapped in the closing moments of the song. It's not a harmonically complex song, it's really just a couple chords, but that's not really the point of the song. The point is to come up with a few different melodies that can be overlapped. Of course, we see this as a giant hit with Silly Love Songs in 1976. It has some elements to some later Wings hits in it, like the the pulsing bass line and the constant drum beat. This whole album is Paul still trying to figure out what Wings is or what Wings can be. My favorite part of the song are the lyrics, the whole, he says, who are you going to weep on? Who are you going to sleep on? Who are you going to creep on next? <laughs> Weeping on a willow. best part of the song. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Uh, this is the best part of the song right here. Go for it. Weeping on a willow, sleeping on a pillow, leaping armadillo, yes. Leaping armadillo. And he says that last part with such enthusiasm. Leaping armadillo, yes. Leaping armadillo, yes. <laughs> 
It's what in the hell is he talking about? You got to give him this. It's a perfect rhyme. It's a perfect rhyme. Three perfectly rhymed lines in a row that have nothing to do with each other or anything else. Yeah. But he delivers them with enthusiasm. He sings it beautifully. Leaping Armadillo. What is he? You can almost buy it till he gets to Leaping Armadillo. What's right. What's he doing there? Is he trying to do a country thing? Because that would be the Southwest. That's a different kind of country from the kind of country he's been dabbling in. He has, he has lost the plot, but I don't <laughs> care. I am having a great time. Sleeping it, on a pillow is the, that ties in because big barn bed, sleeping on a big barn bed. But then it, they sound like dummy lyrics that he didn't bother to revise, which right. is something. What's he, he saying every night? He does. Lay my head on a pillow. Wanna lay my head on a pillow. I'm resting my mind. Yeah, he's just sort of like stealing his own lines. Pillow sounds right. Pillow, armadillo, willow. (laughs) (laughs) But you have to confess, a pillow, a willow, armadillo, sleeping, creeping, leaping. It's a perfect rhyme. Oh man, it's not bad. It's the kind of thing Sondheim would do, but. It would make sense if it were signed. Right. He need he needed anybody can just rhyme words, you know. He needed a mind like Lennon or Costello to put that in that to frame it in a context. Big Barn Bed's pretty good way to open the album. It's fun and goofy. Let's move on to my love, the the love hate song. The Paul McCartney fan love hate situation. And when I go away, I know my heart can stay. It's in the hands of my love And my love does it go So I know you love this one, so I'll let you And, and hate it Okay, well Love it and hate it Fair Actually, enough Actually, in equal measure, I would say I have such fond memories of you talking to me about the way the in which Yeah, the vocal So you want the to speak vocal. on that? Oh, I think it might be Paul McCartney's greatest vocal Seriously Wow, wow. Look, First of all, you know, the song's in F Talk to any male vocalist about songs in F It's not a popular key for male vocalists It's known to be a bad key So it's in F and it contains a series of high A's. Speak to any male vocalist, baritone or baritoner about high A's. It's a difficult vocal. It's in a difficult key. And it, it has a high A, a repeated high A on the syllable, on the word good. This is not an easy syllable to sing a high A on. And he just sings it flawlessly. He just sings this song in an awkward key with high notes on awkward syllables flawlessly, as if it were the easiest thing in the world. And I think maybe at the time for him it was pretty easy. It must have been. Because if you watch the James Paul McCartney special, you see him do it live, and he sounds about as good as he does on the record. What What astounded me entirely was that this record was recorded live in three hours, a recording session that only lasted three hours. 20, yeah. tw- 20 takes were taken. So imagine that. The, the strings, everything is live, and then each time a new guitar solo was played. Yeah. It's just un- it's unbelievable. There's, there's no way around the genius that this guy has, or at least 
he's so well practiced that stuff that appears superhuman is just, eh, well, we'll get it on the next take. We'll do it in 20. Not a big deal. Yeah. So I assume he's singing it live with the orchestra, right? That's right. The vocal was live. He's so he playing, was playing, playing the keyboard and singing this really difficult vocal that he makes sound easy as pie live right. with the orchestra. That's a lot of pressure, and he did it in three hours. Unreal. Henry McCulloch's guitar solo was improvised, and it was on one of the first takes. So Paul had originally written a solo for Henry to play, and McCulloch just made something up. And McCulloch had said, anyway, I got lucky. To capture a solo like that in one take in a studio is just a stroke of luck, a gift from God, really. And you get that in music. It's a great solo, and it's one of those M.O.R. easy listening solos that you can sing along with. It's it's in the pantheon of singable guitar solos with Goodbye to Love by the Carpenters. And, well, I guess the sax solo in Just the Way You Are by Billy Joel. These solos that are improvised, but they're so tuneful, they really catch the ear, and this is a tuneful solo. Let's hear that solo. So this song was released as a single on March 23rd, 1973 in the UK, where it made it to number nine, topped out there. And it was released April 9th, 1973 in the US, and it made it to number one. It was a gold single. So what was the B-side? The B-side to this record was The Mess, and it was the live version of that. Okay. So one of the best songs on Red Rose Speedway that didn't make it onto Red Rose Speedway did at least make it <laughs> as a B-side right? to a successful single. So a lot of people heard The Mess. I happen to love The Mess, and we'll, I guess, get to that when we discuss The Mess. The, the last thing I have to say about my love that blew my mind was that Paul wrote it in either 69 or 70. So this was written around the same time as Maybe I'm Amazed. So the Beatles are still together, <laughs> sort of. Linda just enters the picture. Let It Be had not been released. Paul has my love in his back pocket. It's hard to believe. Let's talk a little bit about the love-hate angle on my love. Why do people hate my love? Because it has terrible lyrics. Right. I've never been bothered by whoa, whoa, whoa. That's pop music. People go whoa, whoa, whoa. That's all right. It's... The lyrics that are there, it's not the supposedly missing lyrics that bother me. It's the lyrics that are there, which are pretty trite. But I remember as a kid getting a Dave Barry book, and he was like giving Paul such a hard time for the whoa, 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 whoa's. And when my cupboard's bare, you'll still find something there. It's like, this it's, is the guy that wrote, that wrote, I'm down. And you wrote Eleanor Rigby. And you wrote Yesterday. And he wrote here, there, and everywhere. Hey, Jude. And he wrote, I want to hold your hand. And he, yeah, he wrote a lot of lame lyrics, frankly. The Beatles' lyrics aren't all great there. Some of them are my love level, aren't they? 
Maybe yeah. not. Maybe not quite, but certainly early Beatles certainly. are similarly bland. They're not about anything in particular. They're generic love songs. You're right. Well, I agree that my love has bad lyrics, actually. I, I wouldn't even argue it. I'm not bothered by whoa, whoa, whoa. I never have been in any song that I love. Whoa, whoa, whoa is fine. <laughs> I am bothered by, you know, Cupboard's Bear, something there. I am bothered by that. The lyrics almost don't exist. They're so simple and so trite. You're right. I happen to really enjoy the it's understood line, though. It's understood. It's just something about that where it's commanding in a way. Well, I, I wanted to point out since we, we've emphasized the vocals on this song. And really, I, I want to say, I think this is a vocal McCartney couldn't have accomplished during the Beatles. Agreed. This is, this is a technical perfection that only comes from a lot of practice. He's been working on this part of his range for a long time, and now it's just perfect. I wanted to say one more thing about the vocal. When we were talking about Love is Strange on the Wings Wildlife podcast, we talked about this wonderful moment in the vocal where his voice cracks. Money in the hand is the line. Money in the hand. Yeah. There, there's a similarly wonderful moment in the My Love vocal. I guess I'll highlight it here and play it in a sec where his voice cracks. These aren't particularly low notes, but they're kind of low for him right at that moment because he's been singing so high. So his voice cracks when he goes down to the low notes. So let, let's hear that little voice crack there. Okay. It's understood. It's everywhere with my Fantastic. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful singing. It's something I've often said to McCartney haters, that sometimes even when McCartney's saying next to nothing, man, does he say it beautifully. Great voice. And you're right, the live touring, the intense um, demoing and recording has made his... I, I still believe his voice was the best in 75 or 76 when oh, he was okay. on that world tour. I think that's where it stops. Like, that's the end of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look forward to your analysis on that. I, yeah. I still think, I still think uh, this period we're talking about here, 70 through 75 is really the sweet period. And by 76, it's already going a little south. Although it doesn't go that south. We're going to be talking about some amazing vocal performances in as late as 89, so... Get on the right thing. Ram period. So dipping back to 70. So this is the second song on the side A that was written in 1970. Originally intended to be on Ram. It uh, is actually more or less the whole track, including the vocal, are from the Ram sessions. And this song was originally planned for an autumn release in 71 as a single, but was canceled. They loved this song, uh, but on the recording, Paul didn't remember all the lyrics correctly, and then his headphones came out at the end, so there's a bit of a technical malfunction, but... So was he improvising the lyrics? Some of the lyrics are improvised, yeah. Yeah, they're pretty stupid lyrics. What was the one you said Speaking last time? Speaking of stupid lyrics... <laughs> your world is as kind as a penny. Yeah, that's the one. All at once you get love on your mind, and your world is as kind as a... Penny. Yeah. All at once you get love on your mind and your world is as 
Good point, Paul. What are you talking about, bud? <laughs> He's not talking about anything. He clearly made that up on the spot and left it. Unless yeah. I'm, I, I would love to hear from, from Paul <laughs> correcting me on that, yeah, letting right me know in. what the line actually means. I'd love to get a, a penny tweet. can be a kind thing, I suppose. If it's shiny, maybe. Don't know. Okay. Well, anyway, I, I don't know. I, I just have to get into like, deep analysis on that one. It yeah. sounds great, though. It's a great sounding record, a good piano performance. A lot of these traditional McCartney embellishments, the chromatic or ascending bass lines, good guitar tones. Try a little love, you can't go wrong. Like, almost sounds like an advertisement. Do we have a good breakdown on what comes from the Ram sessions and what was overdubbed by Wings in 72? I, I'm guessing the piano is from Ram and the vocal we know is from Ram. Maybe the bass line. Although McCartney did the bass line last, right? So he might not have gotten to that during Ram. Yeah, I, I'm almost positive that the rhythm section and the vocal are from Ram and then the rest, like the guitars, the backwards guitars... So you think that's Denny Sywell on drums? Yes. And probably it's... Spinoza. Dave, it's not Dave. It's Spinoza, you think? I or believe that Huma that's... Kraken. That they were... When they were at Abbey Road or Olympic, that they fed a lot of the instruments and the tapes through effects to get... Okay. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't sound like a Ram song, does it? The, it especially doesn't. the backwards guitar stuff. No. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like a Ram track. Little Lamb Dragonfly sounds like a Ram track. Right. But, which we'll get to just in a few minutes. But yeah, Get On The Right Thing does not. Get On The Right Thing may be my favorite of the like B-tier McCartney songs. Get on the right thing is a solid track. It would have sounded out of place on Ram, but it uh, it works great on Red Rose. It's a highlight on Red Rose Speedway. Stupid lyrics and all. Right. It it found its place. So that brings us to one more kiss. Country pastiche. I actually have no information on this song at all. I didn't take any notes except for I. This is what I wrote down. Incredible vocal performance reminds oh, yeah. me of No More Lonely Nights. Oh, interesting. Well, let's put you to the test on that. Let's hear a little bit of One More Kiss next to No More Lonely Nights from 1984. Only 
You're talking about that country singer voice where he's he's kind of doing a, yeah. a Kermit no the Frog kind of. Lonely nights. Right. right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Only one more kiss. It's like he's singing in this weird part of his throat. It's affected. Yeah. He does that on a few. Doesn't girl. he do that on some other songs? He does it actually a little bit on Little Lamb Dragonfly. Yes, he does. Okay, but we're going to come back to that. Yeah, I think this is a great track, One More Kiss. I think it's a fine little country song. It's, as you say, it's a great vocal. We have gradations of country with Paul. We have outright country pastiche. And then we have songs that are country tinged. But this one is country pastiche. He's actually doing a sort of country singer-ish voice. And they have guitars that sound very country if he had done another draft or another revision or two on these lyrics, it would have been one of his strongest songs. Maybe not single-worthy, but it would have been a gem on an album that people would have talked about more. Especially like the really sort of soft, somebody has built a home for us. Someday we'll see it standing there. But like the wind that has to blow, I must be on my way. It's like, that's not, that's not so bad. It's a bit cliche. But if he had said exactly who built the home for us, like, you know, he, he was like naming characters who took like an Eleanor Rigby sort of vibe on this one. Somebody's built a home for us. All right, who? Someday we'll see it stand in, in two years. Two years we'll see it stand in there. Like, give some concrete imagery. So that brings us to Little Lamb Dragonfly, another Ram leftover. And also the last track on this side of the record. But yeah. Right. Held over from Ram. I can understand why. It's, this is a bad pun also, a bit of a winding road lyrically, kind of hard to follow. Mm-hmm. As we touched on before, it's a, the first part of the song is about a lamb that was actually dying on McCartney's farm that he couldn't do anything for, but actually ultimately survived whatever was happening at the time. And then these, the second half is this, this like little dragonfly or the dragonfly part of the song. I think that's the best part of the song. Mm-hmm. And he's singing in that affected, choral, tenor, country voice. That we... Similar to the one we just heard in right. One More Kiss. Right. I have no answer for you, Rimland. I could help you out. But I cannot. Now, is this actually, this is an actual double song, right? This was conceived as two different songs? Yeah. I think I'd heard somewhere that Treat Her Gently 
Lonely Old People, that was one of the few cases of a double song that was conceived to be exactly as it is, not not as to wasn't originally conceived as no, two I didn't know songs. that. Yeah, that was actually written that way. But this one, Little Lamb Dragonfly, this is two separate songs stitched together. I think as a single recording, it doesn't sound like two recordings stitched no, together. No, no, it's a it's a complete recording, but it's definitely two separate songs pieced together. It would have fit well on Ram. If Ram were like a triple album, Get on the Right Thing maybe wouldn't have fit as well as this song does. This one makes some sense on Ram. It's a farm song, after all. The little lamb of the title is an actual little lamb. Exactly. Apparently his neighbor brought a little lamb over, a sick little lamb, and Paul and Linda took care of it, and Paul thought of this song. Paul had wanted to put this on the Rupert track list at one point, but that idea was abandoned. Hmm. It sounds like a Rupert song. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a great record. I don't... Do you know how much overdubbing was done by Wings on this one? It was a similar situation with Get on the Right Thing, where... Denny Lane added some elements at the end. The other, was it McCulloch or the new guitarist in the band added his couple guitar lines. But the rhythm section, the core of the record is from the Ram era. And some of the vocal Uh, even. No kidding. Yeah. Like the whole first part of the song, I believe, is Ram era. And the rest of the record is like um, Red Rose Speedway era. Interesting. It's pretty seamless to my ear. That could be entirely false, too. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, there is not a lot of information on this record because it's not as celebrated as a lot of the other albums. It doesn't make right. it a bad album. It's just not studied as in-depth. Do we know who did the orchestrations on Little Lamb Dragonfly? So get this. It's the New York Philharmonic. Oh. So maybe that was actually recorded during the Ram sessions, the orchestra. I Is think, that possible? based on that, I think this whole record was recorded during the Ram era. It's hard to believe they would have gone back to New York to record the New York Philharmonic in 72 when they were in the midst of all that touring in Europe. Yeah, it looks like the majority of it was recorded on Ram, and then Denny and Henry added some guitars, and and Denny added a vocal, but this is basically a Ram record. I still am completely flabbergasted by the fact that all of these songs were written during the Ram era, all of my favorite songs that keep appearing on these records. Yeah. It just goes to show that when you're in a period of intense focus, and Paul had to be because of all of the misery that was surrounding him, you can really create great art. It's just you have to put your head down. So let's flip the record over and go to side B of Red Rose Speedway. Single pigeon. And that puts us straight into some Beatles nostalgia. Absolutely Beatles nostalgia. Single pigeon through the railings Did she throw you out? Sunday morning fight about Saturday 
Very Martha, my dear, very your mother should know. Sort of like what we said about Dear Boy. It's not exactly granny music, but it's got a strain of that in it. Especially with the brass band, the little brass arrangement at the end, yeah. This is the closest we'll get to Martha, My Dear. It's like a mm-hmm. sequel. It's like mm-hmm. um, Martha, My Dear's depressed like cousin or brother or something. It's not a sad song, but it's not an overtly happy one because it's about you know a couple being in a fight and effectively Paul having a conversation with a pigeon like a bird. And yet the odd thing about it, and this actually follows on from Little Lamb Dragonfly, because Little Lamb Dragonfly always sounded a bit to me like a children's song. Yeah. And Single Pigeon, despite the adult subject matter, comes off as a children's song in the Me Too section. I'm a lot like you. That's such a children's song. You're right. Me Too, Me Too. That's total Sesame Street. You do. Me Too. The verse is very strong, musically yes. at least. And then, oh, let me say, I mean, this is not a criticism of it that it's a children's song. We've we've talked about actual children's songs that McCartney's written that we love. Some of the nonsense lyrics come from that, actually, but it is a striking feature of of, of both these songs. Oh, you know, I should mention this because I haven't mentioned this for any of the records thus far. The majority of this album was recorded at Olympic Studios in London. With the exception, uh, this song was, was at Olympic. Only One More Kiss was at Morgan. My Love was live at Abbey Road. Um, obviously, the Ram tracks were recorded during the Ram sessions, but Bind on the Large, we're, we're talking Olympic. which gives, In London. Yeah, which gives it this clean, sort of loud, low-end sound. I'm trying to remember which Beatles songs were recorded at Olympic Studios. Wasn't that some, some of the Abbey Road stuff? Yes, some of the Abbey Road stuff, some of the White Album. But I'm just trying to think of specifically which songs. Baby, yeah, no, no, I just looked it up. Baby, You're a Rich Man was recorded there. Uh-oh. Queen Albums, the, the album A Night at the Opera. But anyway, that's, that's digressing a bit. Didn't the Rolling Stones record there? Yes, they did. Uh, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Dusty Springfield... Mick Jagger particularly liked the studio. If if you re- if you read between the lines, it's it's a Glenn Johns thing. This is a studio that he favored, and it has that dry, natural sounding, straight down the middle. Like there's not a lot of superfluous effects on this record, save for some of the guitar work. Even the synth work is sparse. What I was trying to say is that adds to the atmosphere of Single Pigeon because it has. The record feels cold. You feel like you're sitting somewhere on the Thames talking to a bird. Mm. And like the almost a funeral march of the horns. Right. Do you have any, any final notes on Single Pigeon? It's a short song. It's 
quasi granny music. It's pretty great, actually. I like it. Agreed. It goes on a, a mixtape every once and again for a friend. Of course. It sounds so much like a Beatles record. Just if it were lyrically a little stronger, it would have made the grade. Sure. So that brings us to When the Night. song yeah now the luca parasi book talks about it as if it were granny music but i don't quite hear it that way nope i can i can hear the old-fashioned vibe it maybe it has a 50s vibe or it's almost doo-wop it would be actually it makes a good pair with tragedy in a way it's a kind of 50s pop quite so it's not it's not so pastiche and the vocal is quite rough actually it's kind of an it's an almost oh darling vocal it's in the vein of the Oh Darlings and the Call Me Back Agains, these bluesy 6-8 or 3-4 time 50s records. And I mean, the lyric, yeah, I guess the, all the nonsense about the night is beautiful and yellow and like mellow, like that's so 70s. There's even a Sinatra song that I believe was written in the late 50s. 1958. Yeah, it's called The Moon Was Yellow, and the line is, The Moon Was Yellow and the Night Was Young. So that's an old pop music saw by 1973. So he, I think McCartney's playing with that. I don't think he thinks he's being original, and I also don't think it's particularly daffy because that had been used before in, in pop songs. Although McCartney, McCartney's angle is the night was yellow, right? Yeah. When the night was marvelous and yellow. I gotta say, that actually that completely changes the song for me, knowing that it's a Frank reference. It actually makes it less nonsense and more charming. Yeah, I think it's a good song, When the Night. I'd have to listen again, and maybe we can cue this up, but there's no bass guitar. I believe it's just a Moog. It's just a synthesizer. Is that true? Like a sawy triangle wave. A triangle. A sawy triangle wave. Sawy triangle. (laughs) (laughs) That's my solo project, sawy triangle. (laughs) It's my screen name. Saw tweet me at Sawy Triangle. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a good production as well as a, a decent song. So that brings us to Loop, First Indian on the Moon. What are your feelings about this one, Ryan? Big pass. Big, big. <laughs> Paul seems to add these to his albums where I, I, I get it. He likes having fun and experimenting in the studio, but those experiments are often not as fun for the listeners. It's like... I don't know. It's like bringing bringing your friend or your significant other to work, and then they have to sit and watch you work for eight to twelve yeah. hours. 
it, it's an, we should clarify that it's it's an instrumental track. It's spacey. It's also rather a rather offensive bit of, I guess, pastiche. This song this song always struck me as a a big fat musical cigar store Indian. Yeah, it, it's offensive to me. They're doing these sort of Native American sounding vocals and using these sort of, I don't know if they're pentatonic scales exactly, but they're Eastern sounding scales and they're using wind instruments. They're, they're sort of doing a bit of Orientalism on Native Americans here. And it's, so I, I find it a little offensive in addition to being a fluff track. If, if it were only a fluff track, I, I'd, I'd be less hard on it, but it's, you know, it's... You know, the track Frozen Jap from McCartney 2. Yeah. Well, the thing about Frozen Jap is that at least it isn't musical orientalism. It has an offensive title, but it doesn't do anything musically offensive. This actually is in the music and the title, so I think it's unfortunate. And we were just talking a little while ago about the double LP and all the great tracks that McCartney had sitting there. I can think it, you could substitute almost any one of those tracks. Maybe not Jazz Street, but you could <laughs> you yeah. could substitute almost any one of those tracks, including I Would Only Smile. How much better is I Would Only Smile by Denny Lane than this loop, First Indian on the Moon? I mean, roughly 10,000 times better. <laughs> let's hear a little bit of loop, in First Indian on the Moon, sure. and then let's hear a little bit of I Would Only Smile by Denny Lane. Okay. So you just heard the album track and the outtake. I would take Night Out or the studio version of The Mess or even the live version oh, of, of The course. Mess. Oh, of course. Oh, any of, almost any of those songs. Man, Soily, not a great song. I'd take it over this. Best Friend, pretty bland, but take it over this. 1882, not, I don't even have to think about that. I'd love to have 1882 on this album. So a bit of filler. And that brings us to the medley. We should maybe back up here and talk again about the double LP. The double LP, we believe, we believe that the one on Wikipedia, the four-side LP with this strangely long fourth side, 
We believe that that one is the one that was submitted to EMI and was rejected. And EMI came back and asked for a single LP of easy listening tracks. Yeah. So rather than fill the single LP with tracks taken from the original double LP concept, McCartney wanted to record some more material. And he came up with this medley. Now, I guess Lazy Dynamite was at least partially recorded before the rejection of the double LP. And then he built on that. I think, I think I'm right about that. He you built are. on Lazy Dynamite to make the rest of the medley. I happen to really love parts of the medley. I mean, it's not particularly strong. Hold Me Tight's fine. Lazy Dynamite's fine. But Hands of Love and Power Cut are really nice thoughts. They're just not complete. They're prime McCartney, but they're only snippets, and it would have been better. He should have just finished one of those songs, <laughs> right? Right. And just that's the final track in the record. I've waited all my life for you. Hold me tight. Take care. Let's look at it from McCartney's point of view for okay. a second. He had had great success already stitching together fragments. He'd had success with Uncle Albert. He'd had success with Abbey Road. Why not go for it again? He must have thought on some level, this is one of the things I do, and chose to use a good chunk of, of the B-side of this, of this album to showcase a, a medley. But it feels desperate, I guess, in a way yeah. that... Abbey Road and Uncle Albert don't. You're exactly, I think that's the nail on the head right there. In the, on the head and the nail in the coffin. So we should clarify that the suite is made up of four tracks. They are Hold Me Tight, Lazy Dynamite, Hands of Love, and then Power Cut. And then there is a final fifth section where it's still the instrumental. It's like the chords. It's the power cut fade out right but it begins to incorporate fragments of the other three songs the melodies of the other records are played on guitar mm. and we can play <laughs> the part of that now uh which is even which though is they don't entirely fit though no it's it's a little forced it feels ham-fisted yeah
And the individual songs are, they are mostly fragments. You could imagine any one of them being expanded to an entire song, but none of them were. So it's a medley of four fragments that collectively adds up to a good chunk of, of side two. What do you think the best, was, what's your favorite? What's the best one in your opinion? Of the four songs in the fragment? Yeah. Medley? Yeah. It's hard to say because none of, in, in a way I like Hold Me Tight because of the weird chromatic circular thing that it does. But lyrically it's pretty inconsequential. I guess they're all problematic. I, I don't know if I have a favorite. Do you have a favorite? Hands of Love. Hands of Love. It's a bit corny. Yeah, it's 100% corny. <laughs> I can't get over myself Falling to the hands of love Just can't imagine myself Falling head over heels in love But when I saw you last night I knew for the first time That you were the one I'd been dreaming of couldn't fill the entire rest of the album with it you know you don't <laughs> that's well that's <laughs> that's the problem that therein lies the problem yeah. power cut though because that one the, the lyrical content at this time there were frequent power cuts happening or power outs rather in england i think power cut could have been developed into something more substantial with maybe one of those parts as the bridge or a second section like a little lamb slash Dragonfly or an Uncle Albert slash Admiral mm. Halsey. brings us to the end of Red Rose Speedway. So uh, just a couple other things before we wrap up. The original copies of this album featured a braille message on the back cover, which said, We Love You Baby, which was intended for the McCartney's friend Stevie Wonder. The address of the Wings fan club, which ran until 1998, was also printed in braille on the sleeve. Linda McCartney described Red Rose Speedway, which had been recorded in protracted sessions through the previous years as a non-confident record. It's taken from Tom Doyle's book, Man on the Run. 
So even Linda was sort of aware that her husband was still struggling with songs and recordings and business and all these things. The only notable bit of press I found that I thought was interesting was Lenny Kay from the Rolling Stone said, Paul's grandfather would have liked it. That goes exactly with the EMI directive of delivering an LP with a bunch of easy listening songs. You know, I got out the Red Rose Speedway original LP today to listen, listen it through one more time. I was reminded as I looked at the packaging that this was intended to be an ambitious effort. You can see some of the double LP ambition holding over in the packaging. So the package is quite lavish. It has a booklet. I don't know, it's about a six or seven page booklet with, you know, lots of illustrations and lyrics. There's no poster or anything. And as you say, the original LP had some Braille on it. So they really portal, it's a gatefold too. Uh, yeah. so the booklet is kind of embedded in the gatefold. So it's quite a lavish package and it, it's colorful and homebrew looking the way that Ram was. So it, it kind of reinforces for me the idea that uh, this album was intended as some kind of sequel to Ram or some kind of an attempt to carry on in the Ram vein. You actually sent me this record a while back. You had sent it to me as a gift. And I remember thinking something along the same lines, like, why is this packaging so mm -hmm. complicated? And when you look at it in the sense of it was meant to be sort of a sequel to Ram, a double album, a big production, it makes sense. It has a custom label, too. It's not even an Apple label. It's a custom Red Rose Speedway label, black, with the sort of pink and red Red Rose Speedway um, logo. And My Love had a custom Red Rose Speedway label. Chris, did you, did you look at any videos in Paul at this time? I was doing a lot of YouTube digging. Well, I saw the very interesting video of Paul in 72. I think it was during the time of this recording when he got busted for pot. That's exactly what I'm thinking of right now. Can we? He looks cool. Can he we, looks cool in that oh, video. He's got a white scarf. He looks awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and he's quite mischievous. Yeah, uh, can we play that? Let's play some of it. McCartney, who'd been given two weeks to pay the fine, said the judge is a great guy. McCartney's counsel admitted he had knowingly grown the plants but had not known what they were. The cannabis seeds had been planted at his farm about four miles from here. It was said that those seeds had been sent to you. How did you come to grow them? Yeah, well, we got a load of seeds, you know, kind of in the post... And we didn't know what they were, you know, we kind of planted them all and five of them came up like, five of them came up illegal. Now, of course, this uh, conviction might affect your entry to the States where you have considerable yeah. business ent uh, interests there. Yes. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I, uh, I understand I might not get stopped from going into the States because it's uh, a technical offence. <coughs> I hope not, anyway. So, I mean, you can't see this, but <laughs> Paul, obviously in this video is is lying about getting a load of seeds in the post and he's like well we planted them all and five of them came up illegal <laughs> it's just really unbelievable it's just so funny. you have to you have to see the mischievous little smile on his face when he says that last bit about them coming up illegal john lennon once stated that paul mccartney was, was one of the best pr men on the planet and watching videos like this or interviews of him now, 
you can definitely understand why. He always has a spin or a twist on a negative question. Every failure has some silver lining somehow. It really is a, a master class if you can sit through all the stuff in how to do PR the right way. So. so should we address some of the leftover tracks here? Of the songs that were recorded, here's what didn't make the record or were also recorded during this period and released as singles. So you have The Mess, Bridge Over the River Suite, Sea Moon, Hi Hi Hi, Mama's Little Girl, Thank You Darling, Tragedy, Night Out, Seaside Woman, Best Friend, Soily, 1882, I Would Only Smile, Jazz Street, I Lie Around, and finally Henry's Blues. So that's a lot of tracks. It's a lot. But it would double the length of this podcast if we were to discuss those in depth. Well, some of those tracks are wonderful. So we should talk, first of all, a little bit about tragedy. Absolutely. So this has never been officially released. No. It did show up on track listings for Cold Cuts and on all of the Cold Cuts bootlegs. So those of us who know McCartney, we probably know Cold Cuts, so we probably know Tragedy. Yeah, it's a remake of the Fleetwoods song from 1961 that bears some similarity, but wings, but Paul really makes it his own. Wind and storm, gone's the sun, run the stars, my dark has come. Production is fascinating. The sitar you're, I believe, referring to. There's a sitar. There, there was a harp in one version. Yeah, for all the uh, people that are also McCartney fanatics, there are many versions available, different mixes and takes, if you can get your hands on them. And Chris and I have heard a whole series of them, and it's, it's really hard to make a decision on which one actually is the definitive version. Definitely got to have that sitar. The sitar adds texture to it. I feel strongly about the sitar. Yeah, there's an interesting thing about the sitar. In the the late 60s, it was used to kind of symbolize Indianness and Easternness. But by the early 70s, it had simply gotten incorporated into the pop music instrumentarium. It showed up on some Delphonics tracks. And it wasn't, there was no Indianness, no mysticism, nothing. It was just an instrument you could use to spice up your track by about 72. So McCartney sort of throws it in, and it works great. 
there's nothing Indian about it, right? There's nothing, there's no mysticism in the track Tragedy. No. It's a, yeah, it's a doo-wop track, basically. It's a very nice recording, and if you can get your... I mean, it's on YouTube. You should please listen to it. I hope that Paul puts it out, a final mixed and mastered version. But, you know, I'm a little afraid because, as we've learned, some of these final versions he's putting out of these records are not as good as the versions we actually have or have heard as bootlegs. So, Right. Some of them are. Occasionally, the EMI archive versions are the best we've ever heard, right? That's absolutely correct, yes. But some, sometimes we wish we had something else, yeah. So yeah, something a little bit more substantial. Uh, from there, I would, I mean, The Mess. I The Mess. Love now this, The Mess. It was, as we discussed earlier, the B-side for My Love in a live version, right? Yes, correct. Right. From 72. And that was recorded, I actually have it here, recorded August 21st, 1972, in Amsterdam. It's a great track. It's a, an example of the kind of track that could have gone on the album instead of Loop. I've heard the studio version. There is something missing from that version of it. Either it just mm-hmm. wasn't fully overdubbed or, you know, it's just, it's not complete. The energy's lacking. Right. The live version, though. But I think the live version is the one that was going to be included on the double album. That's right. You're, you're, you're right yeah. about that. That's right. The song was inspired by the bands, well, whether Paul knows it or not, was inspired <laughs> by the bands The Shape I'm In, which was released in October 1970. And that song, it's interesting because that song, it never really made it anywhere. The highest it ever went was 62 on the Canadian RPM singles chart. So it's not as if it was a hit. So, well, it's not as if many people know McCartney's The Mess either, but... There but are, in 1973, a lot of people knew it because it was the B-side for My Love. Correct. So there are a lot of similarities there. But uh, again, Paul just taking an idea and making it his own, throwing it through the wings filter. But it's a good record, and it's a real rocker. Real good. And I, it almost sounds as if he wrote it on the bass guitar. I would say that Night Out is worth a little discussion. I really like the little overdub on the lyric where it's like a series of phrases and the last line of each phrase is overdubbed on a separate track, the vocal. Well, I sleep all night and I work all day. You know, yeah. day, like. Yeah. Yeah. 
know, I really can't think of any precedent for it in McCartney's output. What is the night out Beatles precedent, would you say? That's a tough... Night Out is strange. It is really I really, I really wish that he had released it. It's similarly loopy, if you'll pardon the pun, to loop, but <laughs> it's you know much more substantial, and it's a pretty interesting track, and it's such a... I really think it's a very late 70s-sounding track, very kind of disco-sounding. It's a great song. It's decent songwriting. The lyrics are okay. Uh, the production is interesting. Yeah, it's a bummer. I really cannot wait to see what he does with the archive. I hope we get all of these bonus tracks. At the very least, we need a proper cold cuts. That would be a dream come true. Now, we've referred in passing to 1882. This is a song I really like a lot. I know it from a piano-only version that I couldn't tell you when it was recorded. Yeah. And from, I think, a live version that is the one that was going to be on Red Rose Speedway. Yeah, I believe that he started writing that as another, like, end of the Beatles songs. It has a bizarre lyric. I'm not even sure what it's about exactly. I'm not sure what it's about. Good morning, young master. It's 1882. What does that leave us with? Best Friend was not actually uh, listed for the double album, but it was around at the time. And the live version of Best Friend ended up on Cold Cuts. It's a regular blues, I'm down. There's Soily, and Soily is mysterious to me. I've uh, heard a few different versions of it. I don't know which one is definitive. Uh, I think there's a a one-hand clapping version of Soily. Right from '74, yeah. a, they were playing. They were playing it in '72. I know there was a studio version at some point. Right, there's definitely a studio version. It finally found a release on the 1976 double album "Wings Over America." Not not the best version, in my opinion. But. No, and the, the lyrics are ridiculous. People gathered here tonight. I want you to listen to me. To your left and to your right, you got some pretty soily company. And then he just lists types of people. (laughs) Reader, writer, farmer, priest, breed controller. with a Tommy gun. Yeah. (laughs) The cat in satin trousers says it's oily. Wow. Yeah. Still, I'd take it over loop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Paul McCartney's bass guitar playing on that record, uh, the live version, is really spectacular, too. If you can comprehend that he's singing that song and he's like doing this, you said Tommy gun. It almost sounds like he's like shooting a Tommy gun. Like, dun, 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 dun. check it. Like, we should cue that up or hmm. I can point which, that out. Which, sorry, which version is this? That's, that's the Wings Over America version.
The rest of them I don't feel especially strongly about. Jazz Street's not very interesting. Um, although it's, again, stylistically, it's a bit unusual for its time. But I don't find it uh, worth spending time. It's an instrumental track, not much worth spending time on. Thank You Darling doesn't seem to have gotten fully finished. The only version I've ever heard was a bit of a joking around kind of session. With the kazoos? Yeah. <laughs> not much So I think we song. covered, yeah, I think we covered the important stuff there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that wraps it up. This C plus, B minus record. B minus. What was a success? Or B minus. <laughs> was not a failure for Paul. It was a step in the right direction. Yeah. He had a huge hit single with it. He sold a lot of records on both sides of the pond. And he set himself up for what is believed to be his biggest achievement, at least commercially, to date. Band on the Run, which is uh, next up on our hit parade. Well, why don't we go out with a little preview of Band on the Run? You want to give your love You've been listening to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We've just discussed Red Rose Speedway. Next up, Band on the Run. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.